Thank you very much, and thanks very much for that um, fine, if um, perhaps overly glowing, introduction. Perhaps um, we can have an evaluation at the end rather than at the <laughs> beginning. I'm ashamed to say that, um, as you heard, I'm not an alumnus of Princeton. I've made up for that over the years, though. Uh, my daughter is class of 91. Uh, my son is class of 92. And my wife is a graduate alumnus of Princeton with both an MPA and a PhD um, from Princeton. So I feel thoroughly um, entwined with Princeton, um, both professionally and familiarly. And it's a real delight to be able to talk today about health, wealth, and happiness, um, the things that mostly concern us. So um, a lot of what I'm going to talk about today is really to do with measurement. That sounds very boring, so I thought I'd put it on the first slide and get it out of the way. Um, but um, what we're measuring is how well people are doing in leading a good life. And that's a very broad statement. But the components of a good life that I'm going to focus on, they're not the only ones, are having money, um, being healthy, and being happy. And I'll talk about all three of those things. And I'll talk a little bit about the end, when I'm going to spend most of my time talking about happiness, I think. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about what it is that seems to make us happy. But I do want to emphasize that there's been huge recent advancements in measurement, um, much of them to do, of course, with the ability to produce data more cheaply from everywhere you might think. So there's a lot of things we can look at that we didn't used to be able to look at. And in particular, we can begin to build world maps of things like happiness, whereas before, we only had very partial information. I'm going to show you some of those numbers. I want to start with wealth. Um, probably the most familiar of all of these things. Um, and I, here's the briefest possible history of the wealth of the world. What many people don't realize is that human beings have spent nearly all of their existence as human beings running around in small groups of hunter-gatherers foraging and chasing animals. I mean, for maybe about a million years, we did this. And for the last 10 minutes, we've been going to Princeton and doing other things other than chasing animals around um, or gathering seeds. One of the things we know about these groups from studying over the last 200 years, the remaining groups, and also from other evidence, um, that these groups were incredibly egalitarian. Um, basically, everything was shared among them. So within these groups of 30 or 40 or 60 people, um, there were no distinctions of wealth um, at all. We now think that much of that had to do with the inability to store food. So for instance, if I got lucky and I brought down a woolly mammoth one day, there's this large creature out there which I really can't eat by myself. There's no refrigerator to put it in. If I cut it up and store it, it'll go bad. So the only way I can effectively transfer what I caught today into food for tomorrow is to share with all my friends and hope that they'll do the same for me um, when they pull down something. And so these egalitarian norms, which are probably hardwired into our brain because the million years was long enough for that to happen, um, made for these very egalitarian things. And probably the root of the feelings that we now have um, that fairness is very important. It's not the only thing we think is important, but fairness is important to most people. 
There were no leaders in those groups. No one ordered anyone around. If people tried, they first used to make fun of them, and then if they persisted, they would kill them. And so you didn't really get um, important people in these groups. Now, some groups would have been better off than others because they had better hunting grounds. Um, also, what happened over time was they killed off all the big mammals first, and then they had to do with smaller mammals, and they had to hunt harder. One of the things one can see in the skeletal record of those periods is when that happened, and people got shorter, so that people's average height of populations is not a bad indicator of um, how much food they had and how wealthy they were. But there were limited opportunities for differences. I mean, the next phase really comes when the farmers come along, and this is, you know, the last 50,000 years or so, so the 10 minutes at the end of being hunter-gatherers. Um, agriculture is a much more efficient technology, so people could get richer. Um, there's storage. You can store grains. When you can store grains, people can grab a hold of the storage and keep it for themselves, and you begin to get inequality within groups. You can have kings and rulers. You can begin to have states. And then there's substantial inequality within these communities, which was not really there before. So most inequality then was within societies and relatively little between societies. You think of the whole world as being sort of poor, poor farmers. But within one country, there would be a king and people who weren't kings. Think of the pharaohs or whatever. So you had quite a lot of inequality within societies, but there's not a huge lot of difference between societies. Now, the modern world, that really begins to change, starting with the Industrial Revolution in a few countries in Northwest Europe, began in Britain. They split from the rest, and you begin to get, at first very slow, um, economic growth. So those countries that grew sort of left the rest of the world behind at first. And then other countries came in behind them, the other countries of Northwest Europe, America, the colonial offshoots um, of um, Europe, and while many countries have caught up, most countries have not caught up. So that gap that started opening up in the 18th century has never really closed. So there's now enormous inequality around the world, which is not to do with inequality within countries, but to do with inequality between countries, between rich countries and pure countries. And people who've thought about these things hard argue that the poorest countries in the world, the so-called Democratic Republic of Congo, um, Liberia, who have per capita incomes today of $264 and $383 per head, and that's adjusted for price levels, that those are probably about as poor as any societies have ever been in human history. So that while we've pulled away, look at what the UK is, it's $32,000, US is nearly $42,000. And these are all per person. They're all corrected for prices. They're all measured in 2005. And the numbers are unimaginable differences. I mean, the average Congolese has less than half a percent of what the average American has for annual income. And those, you might say, well, prices are lower there, but that's taken into account. So these are just enormous differences that were brought about by this spreading of the modern world. So I like to say that growth has made a world of difference um, in the sense, two senses. It's made enormous difference for us compared with our forebears. We're infinitely richer than our ancestors were in the 18th century. The Congolese are not. So that it's made a world of difference for us. We've gotten really richer. Um, it's also made a world that's full of difference 
because so many people were left behind. Now, you'll hear a lot about growing income inequality in the United States or growing income inequality in Britain, and that's true. But nevertheless, the big sources of inequality in the world are not the within-country inequalities. They're the differences between average citizens in countries, the difference between the United States and the Congo, for example. So let me move quickly on to health, and I'm going to take health and income together. So income is obviously not everything. If you're not alive to enjoy it, um, there's not much point in being rich, or if, as the saying goes, you can't take it with you. Um, or um, if people are disabled in some way, um, then poor health may prevent um, the full enjoyment of even a large income. So what happens if you look at these two things together? Well, one of the things that many people notice today is that rich people typically have much better health than poor people. That's true within countries, and it's true around the world. And one of the things I've been interested in is when did that begin? Was that always true? And what happened was that around the same time as people began to get wealthy um, in Britain around, 19, around 1750, um, life expectancy began to increase on trend for probably the first time in human history. And then that was followed by other countries in Northwest Europe, US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, then Southern Europe and Latin America, and then after the Second World War and only partially in Africa and Asia. So once again, you get this world pulling apart in life chances and life expectancy, with the richer countries becoming longer and longer lived and the poorer ones being left behind. So that once again caused a lot of inequality in the world, this time in life expectancy, not just in wealth. But after World War II, there was a lot of catch up and these differences narrowed at least for a while. Let me show you some pictures. This is the history of life expectancy in England from 1500 through to 1850. This is drawn by a group in Cambridge who spent many, many decades looking at parish records around England, um, trying to figure out when people were born and when they died and how long they lived for. And you can see there's a huge amount of fluctuations, and that's because there are famines, there are plagues, um, there are wars, there are terrible things that happen that cause life expectancy to fluctuate a lot from year to year. But there's no obvious trend there. Now what is interesting is you can impose, this is the ordinary average person in England. Now what happens if you impose on top of that what happened to the dukes, to the um, top of the aristocratic family in Britain? Now you might have thought they would do much better because they were much better fed, they're richer, they had servants, and so on. But for most of that period it's not true and it looks like this. So that up until about 1750, there's really no difference, and for much of the period, the ducal families actually did worse than the ordinary people. Um, they probably ate far too much. They went into battle. Even up until the First World War in Britain, the aristocracy were leading the charge and being killed in droves um, while the ordinary people were sensible enough to try to keep as far back as possible. Um, but you can see that after 1750, something begins to happen. And you begin to get this spreading of life expectancy so that by about 1850, there's nearly a 20-year gap in life expectancy between the ducal families and the ordinary people. This is true for the monarchy, um, too. 
um, as some recent work um, has shown. Now, why did that happen? What happened around 1750? Well, the answer is we don't entirely know, um, but the roots go back to the Enlightenment, to the experimentation, as the historian Roy Porter has called it. In the 18th century in Britain, people stopped focusing on being good, which meant focusing on the church, focusing on the king, and focused, moved towards trying to be happy, um, meaning focusing on trying to build a better life for themselves. And those inventions or new medical technologies, which I think was a lot of it, um, there are a whole bunch of them from 1750 on, most of which were extremely expensive um, when they first started. So <coughs> maybe one of the most important was inoculation for smallpox. Um, this is not vaccination, which was 50 years in the future at this point. This is a technique of inoculation in which people would rub the scabs with a lancet of someone who had smallpox and then rub it into someone's arm or into their skin, which would give them a small dose of smallpox and give them lifelong immunity. Um, that, the first people to do that in Britain, um, the technique was imported from Turkey. And the first people to do it were the king and queen on their kids, or not quite the first. They took a bunch of condemned prisoners <laughs> and tried it out on them first. And when they all survived, um, the king and queen did it to their kids. It was enormously expensive. It eventually spread down through the population. It came to America much earlier, and it was brought to America um, by African slaves from Africa who told American planters how to do this. So for instance, George Washington inoculated the whole of his army. Um, in, in Boston, the whole population was inoculated by the end of the 18th century. There are a whole bunch of other things. Quinine came from Peru. Ipecac came from Brazil. Um, there were midwives, professional midwives from the continent for the first time, and the beginning of city improvements. An interesting comparison with today's medicine in which these miracle cures are coming from the periphery to the center rather than fanning out from the United States or the UK or Europe um, to the rest of the world. That direction has changed. So this health inequality, I see this first health inequality, this difference in life chances, as being a harbinger of gains that were to come. The rich got it first, which often happens, but that was a sign that this was going to spread to everybody else later, um, which in fact it did. So after 1850, you begin to get the sustained life expectancy that is never, sorry, sustained growth in life expectancy that has never stopped since then. So that life expectancy is now in the 80s um, for many of the rich countries. So let me look across countries and these um, graphs, were for, graphs like this were first drawn by Samuel Preston when he was a graduate student at Princeton in the 70s. Um, this is a map, um, it may not be very clear, I think the next ones are a little clearer. Um, this is a map, along the bottom is per capita GDP, um, so you can see income along the bottom here. So these are all the countries of the world, and there's life expectancy shown on the vertical axis. The size of each circle tells you the population of the country. So the big circles are for big countries. So you can see here the two huge ones are India and China. Um, there's um, the United States is this big one near Singapore there. Um, and then there's Norway and Singapore above them. And then there are a few countries 
that are even richer, Macau, Luxembourg, Emirates, and Qatar. I'm going to knock those off the graph because they're special in various ways. As you may know, Macau is now the biggest gambling den on the planet, um, even larger than Las Vegas. Um, and a lot of the income there doesn't really accrue to Macau. Um, it, it accrues to the Chinese gamblers um, who spend time there. So let me knock off those funny countries and then draw a curve um, through here. So what you can see, once again, is this sort of sweep from very low life expectancy among these very low-level um, countries where very low incomes, like Angola, this is Nigeria, um, here. And then it sweeps upwards with China, India, and China. China has now a life expectancy over 70 um, years. India's in the mid-60s. Um, and then the curve seems to bend over a bit. It dips down a little bit to try and pick up Russia, which is way low compared with what you would expect it to be given to its income. And then it sort of sweeps up again to the European countries, and then it bends down again to pick up the United States. So the United States is a lousy performer on health compared with what it ought to be relative to its income. It's one of the lowest life expectancy countries um, among the rich countries um, of the world. And then the curve just bends up again to Singapore, which now has longer life expectancy than Britain. Singapore is almost on the equator, so it's just not true that tropical countries um, can't have um, terrific um, health. Now, this curve I could talk about for a long time, but I just want to say a few things about it. Um, one is that what this looks like is that income is very important for health among the really, really poor countries, and then it's much less important afterwards. Um, and some of that is, that's probably true, um, in that what you need down here is nutrition. Um, you need better water supplies, clean water, things like that are very important for life. Whereas up here, what you're really talking about is cancer, heart disease, and so on, which are not so easily um, tackled um, by having more money. The other thing that happens is around China there is the point that's known as the epidemiological transition which is on the left here, ch people die when they're kids. Most deaths here are kids under five. They're dying of acute respiratory infections, they're dying of diarrheal disease, they're dying of not being vaccinated, and all sorts of things that they would never die of in rich countries. From China upwards, um, what you're talking about is chronic disease, cardiovascular disease, cancers, and old people. So, the way this is often put is as you move along this graph, the disease moves out of the bowels of children into the arteries of old people. <laughs> and that's what goes on over here. It's a very different set of causes of death as you move across that curve. I also want to show you what's been happening over time. So I'm going to show you this graph for 1960, for 1970, 80, 90, and 2008, um, which is the latest one for which I have data. So you can see it's all bunched up on the left-hand side here compared with it being way out there before. So that's the first thing to notice. The world is getting to be a way better place since 1960. It's richer, and people live for longer. So, you know, the newspapers and a lot of the public discourse focus on the terrible things that are happening in the world and the worst places, and that's clearly right. But you never want to lose sight of the fact that over the last 50 years, there's been an enormous improvement in the human lot in terms of 
um, how long people live um, and how much money, the command over resources, the food, um, everything else. So first, I'm going to run through this. I'll tell you what the red spot is in a minute. But I want you to look first at these two countries. So this is India and this is China, two big ones. And I want you to see what happens over the next 50 years. Um, look at that. So China has leapt from below 50, maybe about 45, to 60 in 10-year period. Now, that, of course, is not because of medical advances. It's because they stopped killing people. Um, and in particular, if you go back to 1960, um, 1960 is the height of what was known as the Great Leap, Great Leap Forward, when perhaps 30 million people died um, because the government was sucking grain out of the countryside in the midst of a famine and not paying any attention or listening to the fact that people were dying in huge numbers. So that big jump for China is just to do with the end of the Great Leap Backwards, as we tend to call it. Um, and then after that, you can see both India and China moving steadily up until China's where it is now, um, above 70, um, and India. And they're also moving further to the right. So more and more countries over to the right. So it's sort of onward and upwards, both in terms of years of life that people have to live and also in terms of um, the amount of money they have, how well off they are. So the other one I want to look at is the red blob. The red blob is South Africa. And you could pick other East African countries and get much the same as I'm going to show you. But South Africa is the most dramatic. South Africa has always been a bit below the curve because South Africa has this enormous inequality. Um, and it's basically an average of a really poor country, one down here, with about 15% of a really rich country put in. And that pulls it down um, below where you would expect it to be. But over time, when you go to 1970, it's moving upwards. 1980, it's moving further upwards. 1990, it's almost made it up to the line. And then in the year 2000, it just falls off the chart. And again, it falls off even further. That, of course, is HIV AIDS, um, which has eliminated all the increase in life expectancy in South Africa over the last 50 years. Um, and the same would be true of Botswana. Um, the same would be true of Kenya, um, Uganda, um, all the countries in East and Southern Africa that are deeply affected by HIV AIDS. So this convergence in life expectancy that was going on up until about 1990 was sharply reversed um, by the HIV AIDS epidemic. And maybe it'll go away again. Um, we can only hope. I mean, some progress is being made. So, I just want to summarize some of the important implications for this. Those who are poor in money are also poor in life expectancy. So around the world, deprivation in health and deprivation in income tend to go together. So the rich countries are doubly blessed. The poor countries are doubly cursed, not just in the income dimension, um, but also in the health dimension. That's true within countries, too. I haven't really shown you this, but there's been really no convergence in income levels around the world. Countries got further and further apart, and they stayed that way. In health, the inequalities um, got together, they narrowed, and then they sort of spread again. And there were large increases 
improvements in health after World War II in poor countries from antibiotics, immunization, cleaner water, and like malaria control, um, sometimes very rapidly. And many of those have been undone by HIV AIDS, but one can only hope that we'll get them back. I want to talk a little bit about what in the profession we call non-fatal health. It's very easy to know whether someone's alive or dead, but that seems like a poor measure of health um, for people who are actually alive. It's much harder to measure health when people are alive. Um, once they have diseases, which usually among the elderly, you can tell. But until then, it's very hard to tell. Now, one of the things that a lot of us have gotten very interested in is measuring adult height. Um, you can see why I might be interested in thinking that height is a good idea. And we've taken a lot of flack from this um, for people who are not so blessed. Um, but let me explain what we think about height. Genetics is obviously tremendously important at the individual level. So if your dad is tall, you're much more likely to be tall. If your mom is tall, you're much more likely to be tall. But for populations, when you look at the average of a whole population, the genetics sort of muddles away to the point where if a whole population is very short, it almost certainly means that population is being underfed or that there's too much disease or there's something else. So adult heights, which you can look at in the population now, you can look at the 80-year-olds and the 70-year-olds and the 40-year-olds. And since adult height doesn't change much once you're an adult, it shrinks a little bit after 50, um, you can look and see the history of people's childhoods by looking at the heights of adults um, today. So height is important. To, height's also important in its own right. Taller people are, on, a, on average, smarter. Um, my wife, who did this research, um, always insists that I put the words on average in there, um, are more likely to detain their potential. There's almost nothing, ge genetic height does not make you smarter. What makes you less smart is if you don't get enough to eat um, and you don't fully develop when you're a kid, and then those people tend to be shorter than average because their brains and their bodies develop together. So, you know, if you just say taller people are smarter, you rightly get into terrible trouble. So I try not to say that. They lead better lives, except on airplanes. Um, and though, as I say, usually once, there's nothing left once you adjust for childhood experience. I wanted to show you some examples of how height and intelligence are clearly correlated across countries. This is one of my um, favorite ones. Um, the, um, someone who first saw this picture said it looks like two people taking their hobbits for a walk. <laughs> and so you might have thought even the royal family didn't make their full genetic um, potential. Um, that's probably right. Um, I, I've talked about this um, in France once, and I wanted to give illustrations there. I want to do a then and now picture. So here's the then um, picture, um, where Charles de Gaulle um, on the left is markedly taller um, than um, JFK. Um, in France, I only have to show that picture, and then the audience becomes hysterical with laughter. <laughs> um, here, I really probably need to show the picture that goes with it, um, the sort of now um, picture. And Sarkozy is wearing things on his shoes that are about this thick um, in that picture, which were cut off um, by the photographer. 
So here's a picture more seriously again of a map of heights around the world. Um, these are heights of women, and for some reason we have much better data on women than we do um, on men. Um, each blob here, this I've, I've put, this says the logarithm, ignore the logarithm, You're, this is just income along the bottom, and every mark shows a doubling of income. So you've got really poor countries down here, and the rich countries over there. And this is the average height of women in these countries measured in centimeters. Um, and each blob represents a birth cohort. So there are many blobs for each country, um, like the cohort who was born in 1950, the cohort who was born in, like the classes of sort of idea. And I've never measured it, but I bet you that Princeton classes are getting taller um, over time. Um, so what you can see is the, the blue is Europe, the red in the middle is Central Asia, Latin American and the Caribbean is down here, this is South Asia, the blue is China, the black dots are Africa, various African countries all over the world, and the yellow bit that looks like it's in the middle of darkest Africa is Haiti, um, which is largely an African um, population. Um, look at the Europeans. The blue dots to the left, lower down, are Europeans in 1940s and so on, and then you're moving up through time here. So you can see just how much taller the Europeans have gotten um, about five centimeters um, over the last 50 years, about a centimeter per decade. Um, they're much taller than Chinese, way taller than South Asians. Latin America is very variable, some quite tall people. The shortest people in Latin America are Guatemalans, um, by and large. Um, Chinese are much taller things. Africa has enormous diversity, so that you find people who are really tiny, the Bushmen of the Kalahari, you find people who are enormously tall, the Maasai in Kenya, um, the Dinka um, in southern um, Sudan. We don't understand all of what this is. I mean, it's clear that over the broad sweep of history, people have been getting taller, and very clearly so in Europe. In Africa, the diversity is probably to do with the diversity of food niches, and the, the continent isn't all connected up. So there are groups where food is very plentiful and very rich, and other groups um, for which it's not. In India, where I worked a lot, Indians, as we saw, are among the shortest people in the world, but they're getting taller. Better nourishment, less disease, and childhood. Men are getting taller at about half the rate that Europeans got taller over the last 50 years, about half a centimeter every decade. And astonishingly, women are only getting taller at a third of that rate. And we really don't know what that is. There's none of it in China, there was none of it in Europe, um, and it's presumably some form of discrimination against girl children in India that we don't fully understand. That's a relatively new result, and not all that many people have done much work on it. But it, it's a new finding, different sort of finding, on discrimination against women in India. I just wanted to conclude the health section before I talk about happiness um, <coughs> by just pointing out that many people think these diseases of the poor countries are diseases of poverty, and if we got economic growth, they would go away. I'm not sure that's true. And many of the improvements around the world since World War II happened in places where there was very, very little economic growth. Um, um, 
There's a lot of life-saving going on now by antiretroviral therapy, which was developed in the West and is being applied in the South as well as in the West. There's huge reductions. The, the mortality reductions that are going on in the U.S. and Europe now, and which people my age have been among the primary beneficiaries, are largely technology-driven, and they're not driven um, by income growth. And in fact, the decline in mortality in the U.S. really picked up speed when the U.S. economy started growing more slowly. Um, so it's not, there's no simple relationship between economic growth and um, improvements in life expectancy. All right, let me talk about happiness. Um, happiness brings a smile to everybody's face, as it ought to. In my profession as an economist, um, many economists don't take it seriously at all and tend to produce pictures of clowns. Um, the idea being, you're a clown if you work on this. But there's been actually quite a lot of serious work and controversies and I want to talk a little bit about this. This is work that's being done by psychologists, um, by economists, by sociologists, um, by anthropologists. Um, and there's been a certain amount of um, joint work across the disciplines. So how do we measure happiness? Well, there's lots of different ways of measuring happiness. But perhaps the simplest one is to ask people how they feel about their lives and about their emotional experience. So one of the messages I want to put across is there are lots of different ways of measuring happiness, and they're not all the same. Um, some of them are to do with how your life is going, and some of them is, are you worried? These are different questions. These are attractive questions because you're tapping directly into the respondent's own experience. Uh, indeed, some people, um, Richard Layard in England is perhaps the primary advocate of this, argue that it's everything. If you ask people how they're getting on, you don't need to know anything about their incomes or their health or anything else. That subsumes everything. SWB stands for self-reported well-being. Most of the rest of us argue that it's relevant, but it's not the only thing. It's good to be happy. It's not good to be worried. It's not good to be anxious. But, you know, sometimes you have to be worried in order to get other things that are really very important um, for you. Here's Amartya Sen arguing against self-reported well-being or against happiness. He says, a person who's had a life of misfortune with very little opportunities and rather little hope may be more easily reconciled to deprivations than those raised in more fortunate and affluent circumstances. The metric of happiness may therefore distort the extent of deprivation in a specific and biased way. The hopeless beggar, the precarious landless laborer, the dominated housewife, the hardened unemployed or the overexhausted coolie may all take pleasures in small mercies and manage to suppress intense suffering for the necessity of continuing survival. But it would be ethically deeply mistaken to attach a correspondingly small value to the loss of their well-being because of the survival strategy. And that responds to something that often people say. People will argue that I went to India and the people there look really happy. How can you say that they're poor? And some people accept that argument, and other people, Amartya Sen, for instance, argue that that's wrong. You, you can't do that. And if people manage to find a modicum of happiness under adverse circumstances, that doesn't mean that we're entitled to ethically ignore their adverse circumstances. This is really an argument about adaptation, that if you have misery for a long time, you get used to it. 
and you see happiness in small things, or as Marxists would put it, a false consciousness. Um, worse, it may be that seeking personal happiness may cause you to ignore social injustice. Um, it's the sort of arguments against, you know, you take drugs, I'm happy, you know, why should I care about what's going on in the world? And indeed, there's a large positive thinking um, industry that cultivates personal happiness. But this is an important empirical question about these measures. And if they do what Sen does, we should probably abandon them. But perhaps it doesn't behave that way. And um, what do the data actually show? Now, let me skip that. So I'm running out of time. So I'm going the wrong way. I just wanted to show you some of the people who are working on that. That's Danny Kahneman um, here at Princeton, or recently retired from Princeton. Marty San on the bottom left, that's Lord Richard Layard um, on the right, and that's Richard Easterland on the top right who argues that economic growth does not make people happy, and that's what we should be concerned about. Now, what do the data show? So here's the same graph that I showed you for life expectancy, except now what's on the left-hand side here is a measure of life satisfaction. This is what we call the ladder measure, um, <clears throat> and this says I want you to imagine a ladder um, with the bottom rung marked 0 and the top rung marked 10. So they're like 11.0 to 10. 0 represents the worst possible life you could imagine for yourself. 10 represents the best possible life you can imagine for yourself. Where would you put yourself on this ladder? This is, was invented by Hadley Cantrell, who was a psychologist at Princeton 50 years ago. And this poll is being run by the Gallup organization, who are now surveying all of the citizens of the world um, every year. <laughs> it's an amazing piece of um, private enterprise um, data collection. So they ask the same question, and they've asked it in 160 countries, and they go to most of those countries every year. This is from 2006. So here's income along the bottom, and here are these scores um, on this ladder. Denmark wins this. Um, Denmark always wins these things. Um, people in Denmark only look miserable. Um, they actually think their lives are going about as well as you can imagine. And look at the average, it's up at 8. So out of a score from 0 to 10, the average is 8. Um, Finland is just behind. Um, the U.S. doesn't do too badly, um, sort of well up there. And then you've got India and China um, down here. Here's Georgia, Bulgaria, Russia. It turns out the former Soviet Union and its offshoots are unbelievably miserable um, places. And the Latin American countries, Venezuela, Costa Rica, Brazil, Mexico, um, tend to do very much better than you would expect given their income level. But the point about this is, once again, there's this association um, between country national income and the um, level of well-being here. Now, many... Uh, this computer is not. Many people look at this graph and they see these lines. They say that income matters up to some level and then it doesn't matter at all. Well, I'm going to argue that that's just wrong and that what you have to do is, this is the picture you've just seen, you have to take account of the fact that money matters, but the same amount of money matters less when you're rich than it does when you're poor. And in the limit, you would say, well, the same percentage of money matters. And in fact, what you then need to do is squish up the scale a bit so that you move 
you stretch it out, moving these people up here and leaving um, income in proportional terms. And if you move towards that, this slowly moves across, and you finish up with something that's essentially a straight line. And by this day, you've got a log scale on here. So essentially what you're saying is a 10% increase in income has the same effect on this ladder measure at all levels of income. So the absolute amount of money does much more good in poor countries, but on average, um, this, the same percentage amount has the same effect everywhere. So let me just move on to this. So one of the possible resolutions for this thing is what I said at the beginning, that not all happiness measures are the same. And Danny Kahneman has made the distinction between what he calls hedonic measures and life evaluation. Now the ladder of life, which I've just shown you, asks you explicitly to evaluate how your life is going on a, zero, on a scale of zero to 10. That's the ladder of life question. And that doesn't say, are you happy? The word happiness doesn't appear anywhere in that question. Just saying, how is your life going on a scale from the worst possible life to the best possible life? But then you can also ask people their feelings. And those feelings are different things. So Gallup also asked people, they say, yesterday, did you experience a lot of happiness, a lot of anger, a lot of stress, a lot of worry? Did you smile a lot? Did you have a lot of enjoyment? Were you sad? Were you depressed? So we have answers to all of those questions, and those are how you were feeling yesterday. And that's different from how you see your life going. You could imagine having a very stressful day that was necessary to achieve something very important in your life. Very well-off successful people who say their lives are going very well often report a lot of stress. So stress is not necessarily a bad thing. Now, in a paper that Danny Kahneman and I wrote this summer, we used another Gallup poll, which is a poll that they administer a thousand randomly selected Americans every night. Um, and we looked at the relationship between these measures um, and um, other things, particularly their income. So we looked at the latter as a measure of life evaluation. We took positive effect, negative effect, and stress. Positive effect is like happiness, smiling, enjoyment. Negative effect is being depressed, being sad, being angry, being worried. Um, and stress is just stress. We think stress is sort of different. These are the daily emotional experience of living. And we looked at that across different income levels. And this is what we found. This shows income per year in the US today. So that's from $10,000 up to $160,000 a year. And this shows the fraction of the people who said they had a lot of positive affect yesterday, smiling and laughing, people who said they experienced a lot of stress, and people who said they were sad or angry or worried um, a lot of the day. And what you can see is that not having very much money is really bad for all these outcomes. These people are unhappy, they have very low positive effect, they have a lot of negative effect, and they experience a lot of stress. As your income goes up, these get better and better and better until, and the cut point where everything changes, about $75,000 a year. And if you have more than $75,000 in income a year, those things don't get any better. And in fact, stress actually turns up a little bit. So these high-stressed, high-earning people, that's what comes out 
um, in these surveys. Now, our feeling with this is that once you have little money, this gets in your face all the time. You don't even have enough money to do the things that are important in your life, like socializing with your friends, going down to the bar, you know, going to the ballpark. Things that, you know, if you had just enough money, you would make your lives really worth living. But it's really hard if you're really poor. But then when you get beyond this magic number, it doesn't seem to make very much difference, at least as these measures go in these surveys. However, I don't have the latter on this picture. These are just the emotional, the hedonic experiences. And if you look at the latter, it goes straight up. And so the more you keep getting more and more money, you keep saying you have a better life. So we find no evidence at all that money stops mattering for how you think your life is going, even though it stopped mattering um, for these emotions and so on. So this is sort of summary of this, that being poor even in the US is really bad for you. Lots of life circumstances like being divorced, being alone, or having asthma are correlated with low hedonic effect. And richness actually modulates you against those things. So divorce does much worse things for people's hedonics if you're poor than it does if you're rich. Even the improvement in effect that comes at weekends your emotions of life is better at weekends. I hope that's true of you all now, weekends. Um, and that effect is much lower for poor people. Poor people don't get much of a kick at weekends. Rich people get quite a lot at weekends. Um, all right, I'm going the wrong way again. So let me skip these. Um, I want to leave time for questions. I have some picture of what happened over the financial crisis, which I'll come to if someone wants to know about it. But out of the many press reports um, that described this report, um, which apply more broadly to the lecture, there are two that I particularly liked. One was Le Monde reminded us of Woody Allen's famous saying that money is better than poverty, if only for financial um, reasons. That seems like a good summary. And perhaps the most um, succinct of all was Gawker.com, which said, Science proves poverty sucks. <laughs> that was the sort of totality of our article <laughs> about this paper. Um, so thank you very much, and I'd be very happy to take questions for 10 minutes or so. <clears throat> yes, please. If you can speak loudly, we don't have microphones. Sorry, please. So the question is, how, do, how does education affect this? Um, education is um, typically good for all of these things, but it has much more effect on the latter than it does on your emotional life. So that low educated people, high educated people have very similar patterns of emotional life. They worry about the same, they're happy about the same, they're sad about the same. But education, which so this latter thing should perhaps be seen as something like a status measure. You know, you think your life is going well relative to other people, and education seems to do that. So a PhD takes you way up that ladder, um, but it doesn't buy you a lot of extra happiness. Um, so we think of it as an input um, to those things. Um, women um, have about the same as men. On the emotions, the emotional range for women 
is whiter than it is for men. So that women are more likely to be happy and more likely to be sad. Um, and whereas the men are just sort of, you know, porcine brutes that don't respond to anything at all, something <laughs> like that. You know. Yes, thank Um, I don't think we fully know. No, sorry, the question is why on the health curve, why does the US do so badly compared with the rich countries? Well, <laughs> maybe we don't spend enough money on health care. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's not a serious <laughs> um, argument. Um, Costa Rica has about the same life expectancy that the United States does on about 10% of the health care spending um, that we have. So this is obviously, it's a very political um, question, and you have very different views from the right and the left. A lot of it is that our infant mortality rates are relatively high, and that is clearly racially patterned, but that doesn't explain um, all of it. So even if you just took um, white Americans, we don't do that well. Um, we do better. Um, our mortality rates are pretty good after the age of 65 which some people think is to do with Medicare. But in fact, that um, superiority of the US was there before Medicare was introduced. So it doesn't seem to be Medicare. Um, smoking rates are pretty high in the US. And there's a recent National Academy report on why the US, I'm not sure it's actually published, I think it was published just a couple of weeks ago, um, arguing that smoking is a big part of why um, the US is um, doing relatively poorly. And smoking lingers on for a very, very long time. So that even if everybody stopped smoking now, there'd be excess mortality from people who used to smoke for 20 or 30 years into the future. Um, if you quit smoking now, um, it probably saves you from heart attack now, um, but it, you may already have contracted lung cancer in some form, um, which will get, you won't actually notice um, for a long time into the future. But I mean, that's what people think, and I don't think we really actually know. But it does show that you can spend a lot of money on health without doing very much about life expectancy. Yes, sir. Yeah, so this is a question about maybe our infant mortality is high because we count um, deaths much earlier than some other countries do. I don't exactly know the answer to that, but I do know something related to that, which is we've become, in this country, very, very aggressive at um, saving premature babies. And so that's had a slight effect on driving infant mortality up in the last few years, because these kids would never have been counted as being born in countries where they didn't have that very aggressive technology. So I think that part of it is right. I, I, I don't know enough about the exact definitions of birth, but I, I think what you're saying is probably correct. Yes, please. Um, Notice that there seems to be very good data on height. Yep. Is there also good data on weight? Yes. <laughs> 
Um, I haven't looked at them to the same extent. The, the thing that makes height really great for us to look at is that once you get to be about 18 in the US or 25 in India, your height doesn't really change very much. So if, if I, could, I could take all the people in the room and here, and because you're all different ages, that gives me a way of peering back to what conditions were like when you were small. Um, with weight, <laughs> you know, it changes all the time. I didn't always used to look like this, you know. <laughs> Um, and one day perhaps I won't again, but um, the, so it, it's, it's a more changing target and it gives us less of a window into early childhood circumstances, um, which is what height gives us. But you know, a lot of us lined here have been looking at that too. And there are lots of puzzles there that are not understood. I mean, one of the things that happens is in transitional countries, you get this enormous explosion of weight um, very early on when they begin to get richer, which is nearly all among women. Um, so, you know, when I grew up in Scotland in the late 40s and early 50s, um, the typical Scottish mother was an enormous person. And the men were little guys who smoked a lot and went to <laughs> soccer matches. And if you go to South Africa now, that's what it looks like among the black population too. And you see some of that in the US. Um, too, but in transitional countries all around the world, there's be this explosion of obesity among women, and not to some extent among men. Yes. Intuitively, most people feel happier in springtime and summertime. summertime That's right. Disorder and all that. But the data shows that the northern European countries, which tend to have less sunlight, colder, more winter-like conditions, are happier than the southern European. Countries. Right. Well, the, the, yeah. Well, remember they're they're richer, yeah. so. You know, the, the northern temperate countries tend to be higher income. Um, and so you'd have to net that out. And I'm not sure how much of an effect of latitude there is once you take out income. One of the things that I've looked at, for instance, is religion. Now, religious people are happier than non-religious people on almost all of those scales. Um, conservatives are happier, report themselves to be happier than Democrats or liberals. Um, Religious conservatives are way happier than non-religious conservatives. And someone told me that religious conservatives who own guns are, are among the happiest people um, in America, which is a good thing since you wouldn't want to have them mad. Uh, the, the, uh, just one final thing on that. These northern European countries, um, the picture on happiness is not quite so positive as the picture of life evaluation. So the Danes actually don't do quite as well on the happiness as they do on the life evaluation question. Yes. So you mentioned religion. I, I, I've been curious early on, you talked about the um, Catholic Church On religion. On religion and how that the Yep. Well, it's a very interesting thing because, you know, scholars of the Enlightenment thought that religion would fade away as people got better educated. You know, Marx described it as a vulgar superstition um, that would fade as people got rich. And scholars have argued over that ever since. And I think the general view now is that that's not true, if only because you know, there are fairly rich countries like the United States um, that are extremely religious. The other thing that's strange is that within countries, um, 
religious people are better off than, or report themselves as better off than non-religious people. But it's not a true across countries at all. So those Scandinavian countries that do very well on these scores are among the most irreligious places on the planet. Um, you know, you can scratch a Swede very hard before you find any evidence of religion there at all. Right. No, I, I th yeah, but that was in the 18th century I'm talking about. So I think people stopped obeying the church and obeying the king and tried to make themselves better lives. And I think that spread to most of the world now. It's even spreading to the Middle East, as we talked. Just one more question down here. Can I, sorry, you mean what? Right. Well, that, that's many people, sorry, the question is that maybe happiness is much more related to inequality in income, reversely, yeah. so that equal societies, you know, solidarity is good for you in some sense. I'm sure there's some of that, but it's not so easy to tease out of the data. Um, you know, there, there are places, um, you know, these very poor countries are genuinely very poor, and some of them are very equal. Well, it may be above a certain level, but um, I find that hard to find in the data. This is not an easy question to answer, and the reason is the income, there are really no, what, no matter what people will tell you, there are no good, comparable, inter-country inequality data. So it's almost certainly true that the Scandinavian countries are more equal, and it's almost certainly true that Brazil is more unequal, but we collect the data in the United States in very different ways from the way it's collected in Europe. And so it's been very hard to pin that down, and there are a lot of contradictory findings out there. It's not a very strong relationship, whatever it is, once you control for income. And the, the proposition you just put forward, which is widely believed by many, which is that at low incomes, income matters, at high income, equality matters, I, I don't believe that to be true. But that's my personal view, and there are a lot of other people who disagree with him. Thank you very much.